Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, July 31st, 2012, and this is episode 949, which means we're 51 episodes away. 51 episodes away from episode 1000. I would love you to call in. I'll make sure there's links in the show notes again today to tell you about how to do that. Uh, but the number to call in for episode 1000 is not the Think Line. The number is 866-691-5353. But again, in today's show notes, there will be a link that tells you all about it and lets you listen to some past episodes that were like it if you've never heard one before and are not quite sure what we're doing for episode 1000. I'd also like to apologize for not having a show yesterday. Um, I think most people understood, but uh, my voice was shot. It's still not great. And when you have something like a voice that you actually depend on for your livelihood, you have to take care of it. And when your voice is really bad and really strained, if you keep pushing it, you, you do more damage and it continues to get worse instead of having an opportunity to heal. So I took yesterday as an opportunity to let my voice heal. Uh, a lot of times I don't need to do that after a big event, but in this case I did. I came in and I started recording yesterday. And every word I spoke, it got worse. It was in a clear downward spiral. So I decided to uh, to not do a show yesterday. Normally, I would just say, you know, tough tough breaks, guys. You know, every, everybody needs uh, to take a break once in a while. But uh, because I had not done shows for three days of the week before, I did kind of feel bad not doing it. Now, one jerk ass on the forum uh, made a snide comment, and I responded to him. And usually I don't. I usually just delete trolls and idiots and what have you. But... Every once in a while, you're not in the mood. Yesterday, I wasn't in the mood. But for everybody else, I do apologize for not having a show yesterday. And we'll try to make it a great rest of the week for you. I um, also have an appearance coming up in Vermont uh, at a permaculture course where I'm going to speak as a guest lecturer. Uh, and I'll be gone for about five days for that. And I'm going to try to stack shows this week uh, as the voice gets better so that we don't have any missing. But I'm going to do something special for you guys uh because I did have a show off yesterday uh I've been running an MSB sale it never actually got mentioned on the air the plan was for it to run through yesterday and for me to mention it on the air uh it was part of going away to Texas so the discount code is Texas I have extended that sale through the rest of today so you can get your first year of member support brigade for only $35 with the discount code Texas again you guys that are military law enforcement peace corps paramedics, first responders, things like that. Email me before you join with service discount in the subject line. I'll send you a special discount code. It'll actually not save you quite as much as the sale does right now. We're talking like a dollar or two, um, but it applies to your recurring membership, and you can use the service discount on any membership turn, not just annual. So I think it's a better fit for most of you uh, most of you guys out there that have served. Again, just send me an email with service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you did or who you are and what you're doing, and I will get back to you. Before I get into today's show, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultants, the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his professional cadre of trainers that will teach you how to defend yourself. They'll teach you how to keep your ass alive when you're responding in, in a, uh, you know, a, a civilian response to an incident. Because, you know, let, let, let's say, let's say that you are at a place where something like just happened in Colorado occurred and you're the only armed person there. And let's say somebody stands up and starts shooting a bunch of people. Let's say you stand up and you shoot the person that's shooting a bunch of people in the melee, in the mayhem, 
in the confusion? Is it possible that another civilian who's also a responsible armed citizen might mistake you? Do you know what to do? Do you know how to keep yourself alive in that situation? The, the answer is there's no guarantee, but there's certain things you can do to identify yourself as a good guy very, very quickly so that another concerned citizen doesn't see you as part of the problem and understands that they're aiding you in the solution and you don't have a friendly fire incident. That's, that's one reason right there to take training. Let me give you another one. At the expo in, in Arlington, a guy came up to me started talking to me and said, look, uh, I'm all for concealed carry and all, but I don't know if it would have done any good in Colorado. I said, why not? He goes, because the guy had ballistic armor on. He had a ballistic helmet on. Um, most likely, you could if you had a rifle, but no one would have been carrying a rifle. People would been carrying their 9mm, their 40 Smiths, their 45s, their 380s. You know, what would you do in that scenario? So shoot him in his legs and keep shooting him in his legs. And the guy was like, wow, I, I would have never thought of that. Now, can I guarantee you if I were in that melee that, that that's what would have happened, that I would have acted? No, but what I can tell you is it's in my head. And it's one of those things that's in my head from a prior training. So, folks, if you're going to be armed, take the responsibility to become trained as well. Check out Fortress Defense Consultants today and uh, see what kind of training they offer. They'll teach you to heal, too, folks. If you're going to walk around with the, possible, uh, the, the ability to do harm, uh, you have a responsibility to know how to heal as well. You don't know if you're going to end up in a situation where uh, it's not just a bad guy that's injured. Uh, many times there's a lot of other people injured, and you could be a lifesaver as well as a uh, defender of life if you're properly trained. Next up today, the Berkey guy, Jeff Gleason, the Berkey guy. So you're going to get from Jeff, you're going to get Berkey water filtration systems because he's the Berkey guy. What, what else would you expect? Well, you can actually get some other really cool stuff at directive21.com. That's his site, but he specializes in Berkey water filtration systems. Now, if you're going to get a Berkey, you might think to yourself, I can go to Amazon.com and get a Berkey. I can go to eBay and find tons of sellers selling Berkeys. I can go to a gun show and there'll be a guy there selling Berkeys because all of a sudden preparedness is a hot item. I can go to all different kinds of places and get Berkeys. So why, why from Jeff? Because he's the Berkey guy. I mean, why would you go to anybody but the Berkey guy? Uh, now, I gave Jeff a little bit of grief at the expo because it said uh, LPC Survival, which is actually the name of his company, versus you know the thing he brands, which is the Berkey guy. So uh, maybe you'll get a new banner. But he is the Berkey guy, and he's been supporting this audience for three and a half years. Total number of unresolved complaints about Jeff, zero. Total number of complaints about Jeff, zero. I've had one or two that were complaints about the mail service, and he always fixed it. Uh, so the reason to deal with Jeff, he's not just the Berkey guy, but he's the Berkey guy that's been supporting this audience for three and a half years and doing a damn good job of it. So when you're ready to have water filtration in your home, consider Berkey. And if you're going to go with Berkey, go with the Berkey guy. One more thing real quick before we get into today's main show, and I'm going to talk about the Expo a little bit uh, as we lead off in there. But I also want to remind you guys about TSPCopper.com. If you go to TSPCopper.com, you can get AOCS Barter Copper, and uh, Silver's supposed to be in there soon. Rob keeps promising to hook it up, and I'm sure he will soon for me. Uh, but I'll tell you what. This is why I want to kind of mention it today. At the Expo, AOCS was there. Rob was there. He had all the different uh, copper coins that we sell at TSP Copper, and they were selling like crazy. People are seeing the value in copper. Uh, it's very affordable. I mean, buying a one-off roll of 20, you can get a roll of 20 coins for 34 bucks. Beautifully minted, uh, beautiful messages on them. Second Amendment, Ron Paul, Survival Podcast, Real Truth About Money, uh, Free Lakota Bank. I mean, there's so many awesome ones there. 
And uh, if you buy more than, than one roll, you can get uh, discounts. And if you're an MSB member, you can get 10% off. So if you haven't done so yet, check out TSP Copper today. Now, let me be clear what I'm not saying to do. I'm not saying to go there and buy $5,000 worth of copper and put it away and within your mind that it's a precious metal. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about having an implement to share really cool things, a really great collectible, something that's very affordable, and a fractional way to make change if we ever end up in a barter uh, society. There are three metals that in this country have functioned as money. Gold and silver and copper. Up until 1982, even a penny was 95% copper. In the 1800s, pennies were 100% copper. Interesting thing, if you go back and do the math, and you figure out what 100 pennies, uh, a roll of, I'm sorry, a roll of 50 large cent pennies uh, were worth in, in, the, uh, in the 1800s, And then you figure out what a pound of copper is worth today that's not far off from the equation. So copper is another thing that shows us the real value of money. And it's an affordable way to add a little bit of diversity. So I wanted to throw a little extra in on that today. All right, before I get into your emails and questions and comments, and again, if you want to be on a show like this, send it to Jack, send an email to jack at com and put article for Jack or video for Jack or story for Jack or question for Jack. You got it? That's the formula in there, and I'll, and I'll get to it. Um, but before I get to those today, um, I want to talk a little bit about the expo. And I want to talk about if you're ever somewhere where I'm at, even if there's a lot of people, this is what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to feel that I'm too busy to talk to you. I don't want you to ever feel that I'm too busy to listen to you. I don't want you to see like a bunch of people wanting to talk to me. And if you think I just, I don't want to stand in line or wait around for my turn, that's fine. But if you go away and come back and there's less people later, whatever, you think I'm tired, even when I'm complaining about my voice or whatever, I don't want anybody ever to feel that I don't have the time to talk to you, to listen to you, to hear your story. I had people that came up to me and said, I just want to shake your hand. I don't want to bother you. And they took off before I could even say, Hey, hey, wait, please don't do that. I go to these things to be with you guys, to talk to you guys, and above all, to hear your stories. I also want to talk to the women a little bit out there. I'm going to get on you here, and some of you that were at Arlington, maybe if you're hearing this, you're going to know who you are. I was sitting in the meeting greet area. In comes a bunch of people, and I'm like, they're like in a line around, the, like, don't get in a line, just come on in here, we're all together. Yeah, I'm going to talk to you one at a time, but don't feel like you have to wait in a line, for God's sake. I'll take people in kind of the order they show up. And I see guys kind of moving in, and I see their women. And you women got to stop doing this crap to your men. And not just when they're talking to me in, in lots of cases. Grabbing them by the shirt sleeve and pulling them back like they're, like they're not supposed to go in there. Women, I, I don't know what it is with you guys. Don't do that to your men. Uh, if you want to really upset your, your man, pull crap like that with him. And it will bend his nose the wrong way. It really will. Trust me, I speak from experience. We can police ourselves. We know when we're wanted and when we're not wanted. I just had to throw that out because in an unrelated incident, I had to deal with it myself this weekend. And when I explained it to my wife, she got really mad, but then I think she understood. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into uh, your feedback. I know the intro segment went long, but it's really important to me you guys understand this because it looks like I'm going to be going to Asheville, North Carolina. I have to finalize that for the, the Self-Reliance Expo there. It's around the 15th of September. Um, I, I finalized that with Ron and, uh, and uh, uh, Scott. But uh, it, it's also like seeing if it fits with everything that's going on right now uh, with me. But if there's any way, I'm going to be there. And uh, I, I, don't want, I don't want people feeling like I don't have time or I'm too busy. I just I really don't because... Uh, you guys are everything to me. I, a lot of times people say I've been listening, and I say something like, and it's kind of a joke. I'm glad you're listening, because if nobody listened, I wouldn't have anything to do. Uh, it's a joke, but it's also true. Every single one of you guys are important. I don't say it enough, so a little bit extra time today to say it. All right. Um, 
As is typical, I have a lot of things that will upset you, anger you, piss you off, piss me off, uh, and kind of depress us this time around uh, with a feedback show. It seems like they turn into news days or something like that, and the news is mostly bad. Uh, but I thought I'd lead off with something a little bit more positive than uh, we typically have on these types of shows. Uh, this came to me from Jason, and I won't say his last name, but Jason, you know who you are, and you always send me cool stuff, so thank you for being uh, part, I guess, of my unofficial research team that I feel like I have out there that numbers in the thousands, and you're among the top uh, people that send me cool stuff, so thanks for that. But here's the headline. UCLA develops electricity-generating transparent solar cell windows. Um, and this is actually not really a big new thing to have windows with solar panels inside them. What's different is having a solar window that has a solar panel that generates electricity that's re relatively efficient and doesn't block light. So it doesn't look tinted. It doesn't look like uh, anything other than maybe very, very moderately, slightly tinted glass. Um, let me read it to you here. A team from UCLA has developed a new transparent solar cell that has the ability to generate electricity while still allowing people to see outside. In short, they've created solar power generating window described as a new kind of polymer solar cell, or PSC, that produces energy by absorbing mainly infrared light instead of traditional visible light. Uh, the photo, photoactive plastic cell is nearly 70% transparent to the human eye, so you can look through it like a traditional window. And they got a person holding up a little piece of glass and next to it a little piece of this uh, solar window cell stuff. And it looks actually kind of a little bit dimmer, but not much. In fact, in some ways I'd say it's actually, uh, the, the blue sky looks bluer, and the texture on the building in the distance looks more prominent, almost like when you wear some some really uh, uh, high-end sunglasses that really don't darken things so much, but they, they block the UV light, and you can see more clearly, so actually it might be a better thing. The other thing is that if it's blocking UV, it's probably going to do things like keep your furniture from fading, reduce some of the heat inside the house, and things like that as well. In 2010, we reported that the UK-based Oxford Photovoltaics had won 100,000 pounds, or $150,000 prize, to develop a technology for screen-printed organic solar cells that could be placed on the window panes in order to generate energy. However, today it seems like the team from UCLA has gone one step further and developed a new transparent solar cell that has the ability to generate electricity while still allowing people to see outside. These results open the potential for visibly transparent polymer solar cells as add-on components of portable electronic smart windows and building integrated photovoltaics And in other applications, said uh, study leader Yang Yang, Yang Yang, that's the person's, I'm not making it up, guys, Yang Yang. Same name first, same name last. Uh, Yang Yang, a UCLA professor of material science and engineering and also director of Nano Renewable Energy Center at the California Nano Systems Institute. Our new PSCs are made from plastic-like materials, are lightweight and flexible. More importantly, they can be produced in high volume at low cost. Let me tell you what this means in case you ain't snapped to it. In the future, every home, every building, every window could be generating electricity. And this is actually a really smart way to do things. And I'm going to tell you why. It's not just about, well, we have the space available, right? Because we can only put so much on a roof or so much out in the middle of a field or whatever. It's beyond that. The cost of window is built into the cost of this technology, especially as we ramp up with production over time. In other words, there'll never be a free window. 
right? Unless you go to a Habitat store and recycle one or something like that. But if you're building a new house or you're putting new windows in your home, there's going to be a cost anyway. Hence, when you're building a building, uh, when you're doing a remodel, there's already a budget for this. If I do solar panels, then I have an entire new budget line item. When I have solar panel-based windows, I just have a more expensive budget line item. This is much easier to get into housing, especially with new construction or loan-based remodels uh, with a loan. It, it's going to make a lot more sense to a lender to include this for the resale value than something up on a roof, which is far more easily damaged and far more likely to become uh, not functional. Uh, one of the big things with solar panels on the roof is you have to climb your butt up there every once in a while and clean them off to keep them efficient. Most people clean their windows, especially their first-story windows, off. And most buildings, large-scale office buildings, have people that go out. It's their job to clean windows. So it, it has a lot of potential. How efficient is it? I mean, I'm sure Steve Harris would say it's all junk. He hates all solar panels, and we don't disagree on a lot, but that's a place that we disagree. I believe the efficiency can be leaned out even more. But this is a cool thing. On another sort of related, sort of unrelated note, uh, Dave sent me this email, and two other people this morning sent me the same email, and uh, here's what it says. I just went to Costco to pick up some solar panels yesterday, and uh, I had already gotten a good deal on them, but now they're, they were normally $526. They're still um, they're made by Grape Solar. They're 220-watt uh, panels, and they're selling on Amazon right now for $526. Costco had them on sale for a couple hundred bucks, And now they dropped into $179. And when he went to pick them up, they even gave him the price break, even though he had already uh, purchased them. He says, what that makes you want to know is uh, why the big price drop? I've done some searches on and off for a year. can find no adverse comments about this brand of solar panels. Is it, I suspect, simply a model change or upgrade. Uh, and here's the manufacturer's info. And I'll put a link uh, to these panels and uh, in the show notes. And I'll put a link to, uh, to Costco. And you can see if you can get them in your area, I guess. Uh, but I certainly don't see anything wrong with them. Here's my guess, though. Why the great deal from Costco? It's it's one of two things, and I'll give you the one that's less likely first. Costco's going either to a new model from Grape Solar, so they're going to use their same supplier, and they're going to get a new model, and they're liquidating their inventory. Given it's August, it's the middle of summer, it's a time when people would buy things like this, And they're not going to pay an inventory tax on existing inventory until the end of the year, unless their fiscal year ends now, right? And that's because, let me tell you a little side economic note here. If you own a business, you have inventory sitting on your shelves. In some states especially, and on some ways that accounting works out, you end up paying a tax based on your inventory. So a lot of times a company will do whatever it can take to get the freaking inventory off the shelves Uh, especially long-term inventory, expensive inventory, right before the end of their fiscal year, which was whenever their accounting year ends. And I really wasn't thinking about this, but it's it's possible that Costco's fiscal year ends like next month. So maybe maybe that is why they're doing it, so that they're just going to bring in new models from Grape Solar, or they've decided to go with a different supplier and they're liquidating these panels because they're bringing in new panels. Those are those are two things that are possible. Here's the other one, and this is the one I think is far more likely. Um, I've never really seen a ton of solar panels at my local Costco down in Texas. And um, I don't think the business is booming. And it may be that Costco is just getting out of the solar panel business because they're not really known for it. 
Um, and if it's not if it's not you know impacting the bottom line the right way for them, they're they're gonna they're just dumping them. Now let me tell you something else that I know about this deal. Costco is not making a penny of profit. They're taking a loss on this. They're because I know uh, just by their business model and their margins. Costco's uh, business model is very similar in some ways to Sam's Club, but it's got a definitive difference. Sam's Club wants to sell you the largest amounts of the cheapest crap they can get their hands on for a small profit, so they can do a lot of volume. Costco wants to sell you higher-end items for the same low margin for a larger gross sale. So they want to serve a slightly higher demographic as far as the clientele goes. In fact, they'll often price their membership card 10 bucks higher than whatever, whatever Sam's is because they want the, the customer that makes a decision based on $10 to go to Sam's. They don't want that customer. I'm dead serious. This was a uh, 2020 news report where they talked to the CEO. I remember listening to this years ago, and they were talking about it. And he was basically saying, yeah, that's true. We we want the higher-end customer, not the rich and the wealthy and the 1%, just the slightly more affluent and, and the customer that makes a decision more on quality than price. So with that razor-thin margin, and you're talking about a $550 retail product, even with their buying power, They're losing, say, $100, $150 a panel minimum to get rid of these things. So there's a reason, but I think it's a good panel. So if you've been in the market for panels, 220-watt panels um, for $179, check your your local Costco. I wanted to throw that in there uh, for you guys today as another upside story. Okay, on to something a little bit different. Um, I have said repeatedly in the past that as this country goes through economic turmoil, as we begin to come to terms with $16 trillion worth of debt, as we begin to come to terms with massive inflation, as we begin to come to terms with the fact that at some point the currency actually actually have a reset button hit. We just, we just can't do this. That every time a currency is treated this way, sooner or later you have to kind of restart the, the machine, and that comes with all kinds of misery, and it's just to get yourself out of the hole that you, you put yourself into. That when that happened, and it's, it's beginning to happen, in fact... The way I look at it is there's not a collapse coming. There's a collapse in progress. It's just a very long collapse. I did a whole show on that a couple weeks ago. But as we got into that, that we would become susceptible to foreign money, that we would start to make deals for foreign money. And I'm not going to say that anything that I'm going to tell you uh, today in itself is bad. In other words, the, the, the business I'm going to tell you about, the program that brought the money in and brought the immigrants in. Uh, I don't see there's anything wrong with the immigrants. I don't, I'm not against immigrants, especially coming through the front door with a program like this. I'm just saying it does tell us the mentality we're getting into because what you're about to hear has been more typical of smaller countries, smaller countries that need economic infusions like Costa Rica. Uh, if you want to be a Costa Rican citizen, go to Costa Rica, uh, capitalize $250,000 into a business, You don't even have to give them the money. It's not you're buying it. You're putting your business there and capitalizing $250,000. Keep it in the business for at least five years. Uh, make a commitment to do that. And in six months, you're a Costa Rican citizen. Six months. It's a fast-track program. And uh, you, you, know, you have all the benefits of being a Costa Rican citizen, and it's designed to bring money in. And that's typically been, again, developing countries or countries that are, you know, Costa Rica is fairly well-developed. In some areas, but not others. And uh, But this has been typically what they've been doing. Here's what we're doing here in the United States now. Phoenix Mart announced. Phoenix Mart, that sounds very American, doesn't it? It's American businesses, right? Here we go. Less than two years from now, developers say a 505-acre site 
on the former Story Farm near northwest corner of Arizona 287 Florence Boulevard, and the Toltec Buttes Road will be bustling with 1.5 million square feet sourcing center. It will have more than 2,000 vendors, thousands of jobs, and a combined annual payroll of $300 million. It sounds great, doesn't it? The project inside Casa Grande City Limits was announced on Wednesday morning at City Hall during a press conference by developers and government officials. Phoenix Mart is described as a sourcing center, a gathering place for small and mid-sized businesses to market their products and services directly to consumers, businesses, and international buyers. It will be geared for both wholesale and retail customers, according to Jeremy Schoenfelder, Executive Vice President of Scottsdale-based Arizona Sourcing LLC, which is developing the project. The company's executives have been involved individually in the development and management of commercial properties in Phoenix, Las Vegas, Seattle, Los Angeles, Hawaii, Mexico, and China. AZ Sourcing was formally formed specifically for this project, Schoenfelder said. Phoenix Mart is designed to have six product areas, each with vendors dealing in that type of merchandise, women's, men's, youth, auto, home, and hotel, and food. The facility will also have a convention center that will host trade shows, seminars, demonstrations, conventions, and entertainment events. Everything sounds good so far. What, what's the bad news here? Again, it's not really bad news. Just, just think about what, what's going on here. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because um, it's just going on and on about what it is. Phoenix Mart is a United States Citizen and Immigration Services approved EB-5 investment project to be built on $150 million in capital, largely from foreign investors. That provides the opportunity under a program passed by Congress in 1990, so this is not a new program, for investment in rural areas with high unemployment. Foreign investors who put a minimum of a half a million dollars investment will receive a green card and be allowed to bring their family to the United States. Each foreign investor must produce 10 jobs for U.S. citizens under EB-5 guidelines. The project must be in an area where unemployment is 150% of the national average. Penal County, Su Pinal? Pinal County Supervisor David Schneider, whose District 3 includes sourcing center area, said... The EB-5 district approved by the United States Department includes most of the Casta Grande, Eloy, and Stanfield. We're expecting 300 Chinese nationals, Mayor Bob Jackson said. You can read the rest of the article if you want to. I want to talk a little bit about what this actually means. Some things to key on. Half a million dollars must create 10 jobs, bring their family with them. So what can happen is a family can get together. And a family can put together a half a million dollars. And I think the extended family components and things like your brother and their kids and all are pretty lenient here. Um, so one member of the family puts up a half a million dollars and says, this is my investment. Can I come in? And then the other requirements are you have to go into a place with high unemployment and it has to create 10 jobs. But what happens when a Chinese investment firm gets together a whole bunch of people that each put up their half a million dollars And then collectively, they average more than 10 jobs created per individual investor, even though they're bringing in the rest of their family to take other U.S. jobs, uh, to eventually obtain citizenship and shake even the jobs that they're creating. I'm not, again, I'm not saying this is bad. Look, this nation is not a nation that needs to be turning away immigrants. That's, that's, not, that's not what we're about. 
I'm not any immigrant. I, I never have been, and no matter how much people try to paint me that way, uh, because of my my libertarian ideals, which is you know actually stupid to call a libertarian anti-immigration, because we're for as much immigration as people want to have, as long as we don't have to pay for people that show up here, as long as they have to take care of themselves, as long as they don't get welfare and in-state all the other crap, the government goodies, Medicaid and chip and on and on and on and food stamps and and we, by the way we don't think most people should get that anyway anybody even citizens but you know some people we, we need to have a safety a true safety net for they fall into it but then they get the hell out of it. the safety net is not a place you take a nap it's a place that catches you when you fall you can be still hurt and then you get up and get out of it and go back to your life and take care of yourself That's a safety net. So if we had a true safety net and immigrants didn't go in the safety net, immigrants had to had to come in and stand up, uh, we'd be okay with it. A project like this is even better. It does bring money and it does bring capital in. But what we're starting to see is this program that was set all the way back up in 1990, 1990 which to put in perspective is 22 years, starting to be used on a larger scale. Why? We're vulnerable to it. We're vulnerable to it. We have high unemployment, and yet we still have areas where the unemployment rate's 150% higher than the national average. Those areas have the potential for development. So it's not like, well, yeah, but it's an area in the middle of Kansas, and it's a whole bunch of wheat fields, and the only people that live there are farmers, and they really don't live there. And, it, you know, it's artificially, no, these are developed areas that have resources, have transportation, water, electricity, uh, in large scale, that have the facilities Uh, to be built or developed. And what you're going to start seeing as this nation starts to kind of fall apart is other nations and their wealthy people coming in and using the opportunity to basically buy uh, parts of this country. I have, again, I have nothing against these people that, that are part of this project. It probably will create a lot of American jobs. It'll probably be a positive thing for the community. But here's the big but. Um, it is a foreshadowing of what's to come. And we're starting to see more and more foreign investors as the dollar weakens using stronger foreign currencies to uh, to come in and, and buy things up. And I, I would bet you, I'm just going to bet, that the Chinese government could set up programs where the investor could borrow the money from the Chinese government and then get forgiveness on the investment or sign over the profit from the investment back to the Chinese government. And this could become a hell of a lot more profitable for China than we would currently believe uh, by establishing little beachheads all over here. And I'm getting, I'm putting China down as, in, as the individuals or the people. I'm just saying this, this, this nation that's been communist for so long that we always said, well, why don't you guys get on the capitalist bandwagon, is in some ways more capitalist than the United States is today. And they figured this game out, and they're pretty good at it. And it's just another example of them potentially showing major global dominance. Uh, as we weaken through our own stupidity and idiocy and ignorance of monetary policy, and they play the game better than we are currently playing the game. Let's take another one. little quick one here. Last week I talked about a product from 3M, a window film that somebody had asked about, and I did some research on it. I was quite impressed with it. And what this film does is you put it on your windows, and it, it wanted to, uh, the higher-end stuff anyway, reduces UV uh, penetration. And it also uh, reduces, therefore, thermal effects of the sun and helps keep your house cooler, so it improves energy efficiency. But the big thing from a security perspective is you put this thick, tough-ass film that you can't even see on your windows, and then some guy tries to beat a hole through it with a baseball bat. It's all but impossible to get the window the hell out of the frame. 
Uh, at least that's a story. And I, I wonder if, you know, again, I, I say even with this stuff I'm going to tell you about today, somebody with uh, that knows what it is utilizing a knife uh, may be able to have a little bit better luck. But the more I look at it, even that is going to be complicated because it holds the window in. And it would take a damn long time to get in. Some people have done some pricing checks on it. It's a little bit expensive, it seems, but it does seem to do what it says it does. I don't know what the pricing on this product is I'm going to tell you about today, but I found another product. Uh, it was sent in to me by Steve, uh, actually Steve-O, Archer on the forums, and uh, it's called Shatterguard. And uh, Shatterguard is a, another film. It doesn't seem like it has anything to do with energy efficiency, which may make it a little bit more affordable than the 3M product. Their website looks like something that was built in 1999. It's terrible. It's horrible. It's a frame-based site. Those of you who know what that means will, especially you web developers, will giggle a little, little bit that a real company has a frames-based site today. Black background, little graphics, etc. Their site's terrible. Um, they look like they do a lot of business. They look like they have some money. And one of you guys that's a web developer... Uh, you should get in touch with these guys and potentially find yourself a new client uh, by fixing this crappy-ass website. Don't let the, the site fool you, though. I mean, they, they have clients like uh, Department of Homeland Security, uh, and the FBI, the Drug Enforcement Agency, America Online, the Jimmy Carter Presidential Center, uh, Wells Fargo, Kaiser Permanente, U.S. Naval Consolidated Brigade, uh, U.S. Barber's uh, Point Naval Center, U.S. Naval Defense Depot in Korea, Uh, the Exelon Nuclear Plant, Birch Telecom, AirTouch Cellular, uh, St. Uh, Jude Apostle School, uh, L.A. County Sheriff's uh, Prison, uh, Northern Tool, Starbucks Coffee, Air National Guard, uh, HSBC Bank. For, just, okay, I'm giving you that because I needed to see that. Because when I looked at this website, I went, who are these clowns? I, I really did. And uh, to me, it just didn't make any sense that this site would look like this, but... They seem very, very solid. They have a great demonstration video uh, of a guy beating the hell out of a window with this stuff on it. And the one guy beats the window and beats the window and beats the window. And eventually the bat actually cracks and hurts his hands. Now, could this all be set, you know, kind of a little bit uh, theatrics and all? Possibly, but I'm becoming more and more uh, uh, fond of the whole concept of these window security films. It seems like an easy thing to do. Uh, especially for business owners that have storefronts and things like that. Um, so it's just another option. And if anybody gets some pricing from these guys on what it would cost to uh, to get their, the film from them, and we can compare that to 3M, uh, both to their just security film, which is what this is, and to their higher end that's also energy efficiency, uh, I'd love to hear back from you in the, sh in the, uh, the, the show notes and the comments area on the blog. I'll put a link to this uh, site today so you guys can take a look at it. Again, I'm warning you, the site looks like crap, but the product looks solid. Here's a really interesting question. It's something I've bounced around in my head, and I actually have an answer for it. It's it's not a great one for us, as, as it seldom is when we're comparing ourselves to what the government would let us do. Anyway, it's from Eric, and Eric says, Can a business accept U.S. minted silver coins, pre-65, 90% stuff, or similar, for payments, like you accept silver coins for MSB membership, and only count the income at the face value rather than the bullion value? Part of me thinks it would work, and part of me thinks the greedy government probably would throw a fit and has maybe already put a stop to it somehow. I occasionally get a silver dime or a quarter and lots of copper pennies through my business. I search sometimes, and no, I didn't give them goods or services worth the bullion content, and I'm sure they didn't realize it was silver. Okay, 
what you're talking about there. If I run a business, let's say I run a storefront business, people come in and buy my widgets and gadgets and things and stuff. And I tell somebody, you owe me $14.75, and they hand me $14 and three quarters. And one of those quarters is a silver quarter. I am absolutely under no obligation whatsoever obligated to report that silver quarter as silver value income. That is fine. But the whole idea that I'll just accept silver currency coin and, and report the face value gets interrupted by the simplicity of the legal tender law, something that doesn't directly seem to be related. But the legal tender law basically says if I price an item at $5 and you walk in and write me, a, and if, as long as I accept checks, you write me a $5 check, uh, you know, that really has nothing to do with legal tender law. So let's forget about it. Checks and credit cards, that's a private business decision. But if you walk in with a $5 United States Federal Reserve note, the The uh, legal tender law requires that if I price the item at $5, I market the item at $5, I sell the item at $5, I accept that note. Okay, requires it. And it, re it makes that note income, and it makes me have to report it as a sale. And if I tendered four Federal Reserve notes, we're to have a profit of a dollar or 20%. Now, where we would get into a problem with, I'll accept $5 in silver coin for something that's actually worth let's say rate about a hundred bucks, which if I had 50 silver dimes today, the melt value is about 101 bucks. So I would say, okay, I'll sell this hundred dollar item for 50 silver dimes or equivalent quarters or, you know, 10, 50 cent pieces or five U.S. silver dollars, but it's U.S. currency. So it's a $5 sale. That's fine until somebody walks in the door with a $5 Lincoln Federal Reserve note, says, I want to buy that item for this. You can say it's $100 in cash and $5 in silver coin, but now the silver is being traded for the market value of the item. And that's why it won't work. Now, the truth be told, a business owner that had a storefront business that occasionally sold items for silver coin here and there probably would never hear from anybody and I have a problem. But if you try to make a mainstream business model out of this, set up an exchange or something so that it's a whole list of vendors and there's you know millions of dollars in business being done in U.S. silver coin and it's being reported at the face value, you know they're going to shut that down and they're going to use the legal tender law. They're not even going to have to actually shut you down. Uh, think about it this way. A guy goes in, you know, a, a, a Fed goes into the place and the guy says, yeah, I sell... These, uh, these cars for a $1,000 U.S. coin, an auditor, right? And uh, he says, well, let me see your... And he shows it to him, and it's all legit. All the guy has to say is, you know what? This is your lucky day since you sell cars. Those cars are $1,000 a piece? Yeah, I want 20 of them for $20,000. Here's $20,000 in U.S. currency in Federal Reserve notes. What do you think the guy's going to say? What kind of bath is he going to take on that? The other side of this is, if you start to do business in volume, as soon as you go outside of your network, so if I'm taking silver for everything I sell, eventually I have to pay taxes, right? And you can say, well, I'm paying it on the lower money, but I got to pay it, right? I got to pay electric bills, I got to pay phone bills, I got to pay everything else. When I convert it to currency, I have to report the value that it was required at and the value that it's sold at. And since I've reported it as $5 of income, it's, it's a $95 profit on silver because I've reported it as income when I sold the item for $5. Even if I reported it as a loss, it's still income. 
So that means what I'm claiming that I that I that I uh, tendered for the 50 dimes was five dollars in value. Therefore, when I sell it for a hundred to convert it to currency to pay all the rest of my bills. So it, the the whole idea of exchanging U.S. silver coin pre 65, so 1964 and back, in a kind of a barter network is fine on a small scale, and it probably floats on a small scale. But making it a large-scale business model, you're frankly better off just doing it with silver bullion. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's one of those things with, I don't give financial advice, tax advice, or legal advice, but my analysis of the situation is no, it won't work in the way that the question is being asked. Okay, here's another question. I've heard mentioned on various podcast books, forums, about water preserver from Seven Seas that will give you uh, give your water a safe drinking shelf life of five years rather than rotating every six to 12 months. The active ingredient is sodium hypochlorite at 5.25%. Exactly the same active ingredients as bleach, but a very minimal reduction in concentration. Their website claims pH balance stabilized so that you can use just plain, so, so you can't use just plain bleach. Browsing the web has turned uh, up that most people think it's just a marketing pitch to justify $12 for about an ounce, enough for 55 gallons of preserving. It has the same dosing guidelines for bleach. Do you know if this is different than bleach? Thanks. Love your show, Eric. Okay. One more time on water, guys. Okay. If it's if you purify water and if it comes out of the tap clean, if it was, you know, purified with bleach, if it was boiled, if it was distilled, if it's water right now with no pathogens in it, no chemicals in it, and no food for pathogens to survive on, and it's pure, clean water, and you put it into a sealed container, in a hundred years it's still good. In a hundred years it's still good. It's not going to go bad. It will not 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 go bad. For God's sakes, water doesn't go bad. Period. There has to be something in the water for it to go bad. If you have any doubts about it, I don't care what you treated it with six months ago, you treat it again. Um, you can treat water with pool shock. It's dirt cheap. There's no reason not to do it. There's countless websites that tell you the ratios to use it for. You can buy a bag of that stuff for a few bucks and treat just tremendous amounts of water if you feel the need to treat it. But for the love of God, and I, I, I'm sorry to pick on Eric and everybody else, but I just don't understand, other than for the purpose of selling you guys crap, that the market wants to sell you whatever they can figure out to sell you, where this concept has come from, that oh, we have to rotate our water every six months. This is what happens to water when it sits in any container for too long a period of time. It absorbs flavors and characteristics of the container. So the biggest reason to rotate the water is because it becomes poor tasting. Anybody that's ever opened up a, a plastic bottle of water that's been sitting in a basement for, let's say, two or three years has noticed kind of the muskiness of the basement and the plastic flavor of the water has increased. If you have water in a garden hose and you turn the water on, you don't completely rinse the hose out first. You get the taste of hose water. The, the water doesn't go bad. And if it is a sealed container, then nothing can get into the water to make it go bad. And I'm not angry at the people asking the questions. I'm angry at the people in this industry that feel the need so much to justify their existence, to sell you bullshit you don't need, that they play on the fears that your water's going to go bad. Let me put it in another perspective for you. If you go to your faucet right now, or your well, or wherever you get your water from, your Berkey water filter, whatever, 
and you fill up a glass of water and you drink it, you're drinking recycled dinosaur piss. Okay? At some point in the past, that water was probably consumed by a dinosaur and urinated onto the ground and went back into the water cycle. Water doesn't go bad. Water becomes contaminated and then must be decontaminated. But there's no water that just sitting there all by itself will ever go bad. It's not possible. It has to have some sort of pathogen or chemical introduced into it. All right, let's go to another one. Again, sorry for tweaking a little bit, but I just it just bugs me. It pisses me off. And I'm going to tell you the easiest way to rotate your water is if you water a garden, put a hose in one end of your tanks and a hose out the other end of the tanks. And every time you water your dadgone garden, you're rotating your water anyway. It stays nice and fresh. All right. But if you have water stored long term, if there's any possibility whatsoever that anything might have gotten into it, it should be purified before you use it a second time anyway, at least filtered. But stop worrying about your water going bad. It has no shelf life. The reason... The reason that bottled water has an expiration date goes back to my favorite state to pick on other than California, and I was born there. There is no more group of moronic idiots running a state other than California than New Jersey. Most of the people in government in New Jersey should be drugged into the streets, have their ass kicked, and just sent out of the country. Go find something to do somewhere else. Because New Jersey just... Ugh. New Jersey, they charges people with a four-bedroom house, twelve to sixteen thousand dollars in property taxes to live in your crappy state with terrible unemployment, high taxes, and 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 frankly, some very rude people. Not all Jerseyites are rude. Again, I was born there, right? So I can talk about my own a little bit. But you guys know what I'm talking about. The guys that live in Jersey, they live just over from you know from New York. They think they're New Yorkers that aren't, that are way ruder than even the rudest New Yorker you'll ever find. Those guys, I gotta leave with those guys, pay ridiculous property taxes, pay ridiculous taxes to the state, and deal with your idiocy. They're the reason that water has an expiration date. Why? They passed a law that said any item, any food item on a shelf has to have an expiration date, even if it doesn't need one. So the water manufacturer said, screw it, two years, whatever. And then they said, well, we're not going to print New Jersey bottles and then bottles for everywhere else. So they put it on all their bottles so they could do business in New Jersey. That's why. So there you go. On taxes and property taxes, here's a question that's very well thought out, but I don't really completely agree with. Uh, Dan sends this one in. I wonder why the, I wonder why the income tax is demonized more than any other tax. It may be because it's, because it's a federal tax. I feel the property tax is much more invasive. If a person wanted to do his own thing and completely live off the land, growing and hunting his own food, he would pay no income tax, but he would still have to be part of the mainstream to earn money to pay property tax, therefore not allowing him to be left alone to do as he wishes. I certainly dislike the percentage we have to pay in income tax and sales tax, but I think property tax, even though it is local, is much worse tax. I really like your show. I don't agree with you 100% of the time, but I do a lot. Uh, and uh, Thanks so much, Dan. Okay. Um, you got a point. You got a point that I can reduce my income to a point of nothing if I want to and pay no income tax. But is that even logical that a person's going to be able to likely live that way today? And the answer is no. People are going to have to generate some level of income. If I wanted to buy, you know, a hundred acres, I need money to buy the hundred acres in the first place. I guess if it was handed down through family and inherited, I, uh, you know, I could have that land and, and they could put a value on it and tax me on it. And that does de indeed seem unfair, but so do all taxes. But 
This is why I think that the income tax is more uh, onerous and oppressive than the property tax. If I want to earn an income, I'm going to pay income tax on it, especially once I earn a significant income. The more money that I earn, the more tax I'll pay. Not in a linear way, which I actually would be okay with. If they said the tax rate is 15% for everybody. If you make $10,000, you pay $1,500 in taxes. If you pay, make $100,000, you pay $15,000. If you make a million, you pay $150. If that's how it worked and the person that made 10 times more paid 10 times as much, still wouldn't like it, still wouldn't like what they're doing with our money, the way they're wasting our money, um, but it would at least be fair. Having somebody that makes a little bit of money paying almost nothing to, to, to next to nothing, somebody that makes a decent income you know, paying 18% and then having a person that really kills themselves to make a few hundred thousand dollars a year paying 33, 36, 38%, depending on what time in history we're talking about, and then saying that so the rich pay more is completely unfair. It's completely unfair because you've got this graduated nature. So that makes it worse in of itself. The next thing about the income tax to me that makes it worse than property tax is it is it is completely as long as I live within the confines of the United States, maintain my United States citizenship, independent of geography. I can't change it based on where I live. Now, I can run a business and create deductions and things like that, but in reality, I'm going to pay pretty much what I'm going to pay. There's, there's no choice in the matter. With property tax, I can move out of the country and pay very low property taxes. With property tax, often just moving a mile or five miles will greatly reduce my property tax burden. If I get out of the so-called trendy areas and all the places that the people that I don't want to freaking see want to be, if I get away from the HOAs and the quote-unquote good schools that are dumbing down our children just as much as the bad schools, if I do that, I can reduce my property tax. Okay, Property tax can also be addressed from another way. You mentioned a person wanting to live off the land. A person living off the land uh, would almost inevitably be able to file for an agricultural exemption and pay very, very low property taxes while living off the land. So there's, there's all types of ways that I can address a property tax uh, that I simply can't address an income tax other than not to earn income. Now, uh, if you can go and reduce your income and pay less income tax, hey, I'm all for it. I'd love to see more and more people do that. I'd love to see more and more wealthy people start figuring out more creative ways to donate their money uh, to charities and get even bigger tax deductions than they do for doing it already. I'd like to see people in this country have more power over their taxes. But let me, on the tax subject, it's always very sensitive, and people that don't make a lot of money say, why should I have to pay more? Those rich jerks. And then the rich people say, why does this guy not pull his rate? Let me tell you the truth about taxation in America today. This should be your stance on taxes at the local, federal, state, county, everywhere level right now. No more. You don't get no more. None of you get any more. And I'll tell you why. You're not doing a good job with the money you have. I don't care. I don't want to hear about this. Is, this is what you guys need to start telling people when they start giving you the crap. Well, Warren Buffett says, I don't give a shit what Warren Buffett says. I don't care what the rich pay. I don't care what the poor pay. I don't care anything. All I care is they have over $2 trillion in taxes that they collect a year right now. What are they doing with it? Are they doing a good job? Are they being good stewards of our money? And the answer is no. Even with collecting trillions of dollars in taxes, they've still managed to run up $16 trillion of debt. Why should they get any more? And then to break it down for the simple-minded person who doesn't want to hear this because it breaks the paradigm, let's put it this way. Let's say you and all the members of your family had a member of your family named Tom. 
And Tom, for one reason or another, was not able to earn income. Maybe somebody passed a law that said Tom can't have a job. Right? He just can't. He can't create income. He's not allowed to because that's your government. Your government cannot generate income. All it can do is take your money and spend it. That's what taxes are. The government produces nothing. The government cannot create jobs. Jobs are created by demand. The government takes money and recycles it, and then they call it job creation when they hire somebody to handle the accounting of the money they took away. So that's your, that's your family member, Tom. And your whole family gets together and says, since Tom can't generate income, we'll give Tom a job on the family. He will take care of things for the family. He'll pay some of our bills. When something needs to be fixed, he'll make a phone call. Uh, and we'll give him money. And everybody in the family, based on their ability to pay Tom, will just donate money to Tom. And Tom will look after this stuff for us. And then, let's say 10 years later, you guys have been giving Tom this money. And it's more money than he should need. To do the things he's supposed to do. Let's say half of the stuff he's supposed to do is done perfectly. Right? And that's probably better than the government. Let's give him the Tom has done half of everything perfectly. Let's say of the half that's left, half of that has just been done terribly wrong. And half of it hasn't even been looked at. So he's he's like 75% done, but only only 50% gets done well, and 25% gets done like crap, and the other 25% of what he's supposed to do uh, doesn't even get doesn't even get looked after, right? And you guys have been giving him money all these years, and you say to Tom, "Look, Tom, um, we want this stuff fixed," and he says, "I need more money," and you say, well, "Why do you need more money? We've been giving you money." He says, "Well, I, I spent it all," and you go, "But we still give so you still have a cash flow." In fact, we've been giving you a little more money every year, so you're actually going to get more money this year from us than you than you were going to get last year from us, and you're not doing a job and you're not fixing everything. He says, well, there's this other problem. And you say, what's the other problem? He goes, I'm in debt. And you go, what? Yeah, not really me. Like, you guys are in debt. Like, I've been managing this stuff for you, and, and like some of the stuff you wanted um, wasn't really like available with the money you were giving me, so I borrowed money. And you go, okay, how much do we owe? And he says, collectively, the family now owes a million dollars. Give me some more money, please. And I got to start paying on this debt, so give me even more. What would you tell Tom? I think you'd use a word that begins with F and ends with a K. I think that's the word you would use. It's the word I would use. This is your government. This is exact. And, and you wouldn't say, well, Uncle Steve is the wealthiest, so he should give Tom more money. You tell Tom, you don't get no more money. And if you were locked into having Tom, you couldn't get rid of Tom, right? But we should call him Sam. Uncle Sam. It's Uncle Sam, right? So you locked into Sam. You can't get rid of Sam. You can't kill him. The rest of the family won't let you. You just got to deal with Sam. You would say, you know what, Sam? We're going to be more involved. We're going to pay attention to what you're doing. We are going to get this debt paid down. We're going to keep giving you the money we need to keep the system running. But you're not going to get away with this crap anymore, and you're certainly not getting any more money. Wouldn't you? Isn't that exactly what any family would do that had an Uncle Sam that had behaved this way? You got one. You have one. He wants you to pay him more. And he tells you, look, look, Bill, it's okay. I know you can't afford more, but go tell Uncle Steve to give me more because Steve has lots. You're paying your fair share. Look, Debbie, I know you're not paying anything at all. It's okay. You don't really have much, much at all anyway. Some of the stuff that, that they're giving me, I'm actually, I'm helping you with. So go tell Uncle Steve who has lots of money to pay more. That's what Uncle Sam's telling you. Uncle Sam has been a poor steward of your money. He should not get one thin red 
cent more from anybody till he fixes the problem that he created. And he's not going to do it because he's irresponsible. So it's up to us to stand on his feet, punch him in the face, kick him in the ass, and make him do it until your fellow Americans realize that we're all in this together and stop pointing fingers and talking about Warren Buffett and all this other bull crap. Which tax is worse doesn't matter. They just shouldn't get any more, any of them anywhere, until they fix what they've screwed up. Uh, I usually don't let people have two emails in a show, but Dan sent me a second one. It's quick and easy, and I don't have a lot of comments on it other than I think it's cool, so I'll go ahead and read it. Uh, it says, Jack, in an effort to support local agriculture, my wife and I are hosting a local food barbecue for our friends. This is something easy that you could recommend to your listeners to do to spread the word. We're smoking a brisket, grass-fed, no hormones, raised 10 minutes away from our home. Salad and veggies are mostly from our garden. Brew from a brewery five minutes away. Wine from a vineyard 30 minutes away. We are foodies who regularly throw large dinner parties and are encouraging our guests to bring local sides or veggies uh, on Black November on the forums. Very cool. And I think that's something you could do a lot of. And I think that there would be also an opportunity here for people that are more of like the restauranteur type thing that would probably be able to get a lot of the food for free to run special events. Let's think about a restaurant that uh, buys locally, sells local food, but also buys, you know, uh, outsources, you know, buys from larger outside sources as well because of seasonality and things and wants to have a stable menu like a restaurant does. But says, you know, what we'll do is we'll run for our best customers, our be especially a family-run restaurant. This is beautiful for for our best customers. We'll run one special dinner a year that's all local, that no more than a 10-mile radius around the restaurant itself. And we'll have featured everywhere everything came from, beautiful graphics on the walls and everything, welcome. And it's free to the customers. As loyalty rewards are our, our 20 biggest customers every year. Well, those are your high rollers, right? So you tell your, your, your grass-fed beef guy, look, uh, if you'll donate the, you know, the, the, we'll do you know, a common menu for it. So you're not going to come in and order something for this. You'll come in, you'll get this wine, you'll get this beer, you'll get the, you know, maybe it's beef or chicken is your choices. Uh, I think it's great for us to do as individuals, and I think it would be great for caterers, small restaurants, even small chain restaurants. It would be an awesome way to uh, spread the message about what's available locally. Because I think one of the reasons people don't buy more locally is they don't even know where to get it or that it's available in the first place. Here's a tough question. I'd love to hear from you guys after I tell you what I would do as to how you would uh, handle this. Jack, uh, this is from Matt. Jack, how do you balance community member safety and your own safety when you're considered an outsider? A little background, last night my dogs woke me up barking at about 0300. I could see headlights at what appeared to be the end of my neighbor's driveway. I went to investigate and get my dogs to shut up when I realized that the lights were coming down the road and what appeared to be a woman walking along the road. The car was following close. I could not hear talking, but I was still bleary from not being fully awake. Uh, I'm not sure what was going on. Why was the woman walking down the, the road, a county road, while a car follows behind her? Should I get involved? I called 911 at the behest of my wife, but I still wanted to make sure everything was safe. But my wife continued to remind me that we live in an area where people don't enjoy others getting into their business and that we are outsiders who must continue to live here for five more years. We live in a rural area that was founded by a hardened group of people who want to be left alone and many ways, and many ways remain that way. But there is a significant emphasis on community and helping, but limited to things like when your truck is stuck, you need to get assistance getting out. But there's a domestic issue, stay the F out, especially if you're from the north, which we're not. Hope the question and backing around information was clear. Really enjoy the show, Matt. Um, here you go. Um, this is how I would have handled the situation. I would have done almost exactly what you did. 
when you see a woman walking being followed by a car, it's pretty obvious what happens. She's either stormed out of the house and said, I'm leaving, and the guy's following her, or she's gotten out of the car and says, screw you, I'm walking, and the guy's following her. A lot of times these situations end up with a couple makes up. A lot of these times end up with a situation where the guy gets it, that she's not coming back, and he lets it go. Sometimes these end up in really dangerous physical violence. And I don't give a crap what somebody thinks if somebody's life is in danger, I'm going to intervene. But I have no way at this point of knowing if anybody is in actual danger. I would have done what you've done and pick up the phone and called 911. I would have observed the activity while getting ready to leave the house in a moment's notice, and I would have been armed when I left. And as soon as they got out of sight, I would have gotten my car, and I would have followed at a distance and continued to observe and continued to talk to 911 about what I saw that was going on until law enforcement arrived. If I had saw the son of a bitch grab the woman and try to drag her into the car, get out of the car and try to harm her, then I would have immediately been on scene and intervened. And said, you know what, we'll sort this out when the law gets here, but you're not going to pull that shit. I'm not going to watch anybody physically be abused. And if he happened to know who I was and said, you know, you stay out of it, no, no. I stayed out of it right up until you put your hands on her. And we're not going to be doing that. With a caveat, if the woman comes at you or attacks you or whatever, at some point you got to say adults make their own decisions. When I was about 20 years old, I was uh, on my way from one base to another in Panama, and we'd take a cab. And a lot of times you'd have the cab just, because some of the cabs didn't have a thing to get on the base. So they would drop you off and you'd walk through the gate, show your ID, and, and go on about your way. Um, and, you know, you could walk to most things on, on, the, on the forts and the bases anyway. So uh, we get dropped off and we're walking into kind of an area. And there were, let's call them ladies of the evening that would hang out there and food vendors and stuff like that as well. And there was a girl, Panamanian girl, in an argument with her GI boyfriend. And he grabs her by the neck and smacks her. Well, you don't do that in front of a Pennsylvania coal miner. You just don't. So I step in between him. He takes a swing at me. I duck, and I kick him in the gut, and I put him to the ground. I tell him, just calm down. You know, you guys can work this out, but you're not pulling this crap. And the MPs are right over there, and he can either calm himself down, or I can go get them, and they'll throw his ass in jail. And he doesn't want that. He doesn't want this going in front of his commander. Just calm the hell down. And he seems to be getting the point here. And all of a sudden, I feel this tearing of my flesh, and this crazy Panamanian woman jumps on me and claws at my forehead. Well, I turn around and push her off me. I say, the hell with it. You guys are on your own, and I walk away. Right. So there's, there's a point where you do what you can to render aid. And this was a physical blow had been delivered. This guy was a hell of a lot bigger than this girl. But if she wants to attack me for standing up for her, she's on her own. And I did go through the gate and say, you know, there's an issue there you guys might want to take care of. And what they did with it, I don't know. At that point, I had done, I'd done what I could. I'm just glad she didn't get me in the eye when she came. Because she clawed my freaking forehead. Right? So, um, and this is a message for, for you women that end up in these domestic situations. It's never okay. It's never okay. It's never effing okay. It's never okay. If you have a man that will, I'm not talking about you, when people get in arguments and sometimes people shove each other a little bit or, you know, maybe throw some shit on the floor or yell or whatever or, you know, stuff like that. But if a man actually physically harms you, punches you, smacks you, grabs you by something like that, it's never okay. And that guy, you need to get the hell away from him. And if somebody intervenes to help you, 
Don't take up for the son of a bitch who just hurt you. But that's how I would have handled this situation. I'd love to hear what anybody else would have done. I would have followed at a distance. I would have seen it as my civic duty to protect a fellow citizen. But unless there was actually some sort of physical altercation, I would have left it to law enforcement. It is a suspicious activity. It's just like if I saw somebody kind of nosing around my neighbor's house. They might not be causing it. I don't know. I'm going to rely on law enforcement until I observe something actually endangering life or property. But I'm going to report it. That's how it's going to be. I'm going to stay anonymous with the reporting as well. Um, unless I see a point where I have to intervene. That's just who I am and, and how I respond to things like that. Here's an interesting one and one we can learn some things from if we think about it a little bit deeper. Um, this one comes to me from Jesse in Alabama. And Jesse says, Airbus has planned to build an assembly plant in my hometown, Mobile, Alabama. And then there's a link on the blog. And he says, if the economy in the U.S. is going to get really nasty in the next several years, why is Airbus putting all this effort into building an assembly line in the U.S.? I'm not really complaining. I might need to get a job uh, there when I get back. Why do you think this is? One of my guesses is maybe things are so bad in France, even here is better. Maybe labor costs, regulation is better here than France and Germany. Your thoughts, Jesse. Okay, here's what I'm going to tell you. Couple things we can learn from this. Number one is that even though the economy is going to go off the deep end, even though everybody knows the economy is going to go off the deep end, companies and businesses know that they're not going to completely go away, evaporate. It's going to be little house on the frickin' prairie. There will still be, to quote an old movie title, planes, trains, and automobiles. There will still be an economy. It will just suck really bad. It will suck worse than most people can imagine. There will be crime and lawlessness and riots and everything else, and there will still be people and there will still be an economy. Right? If they, as long as they can dig one lump of coal out of the ground, burn down one tree, uh, or, or get one drop of oil, there'll be energy as well. So what we need to be thinking is, where is it going to be worse and how the hell do we stay out of the way when it all goes wrong and how do we avoid getting as hurt as bad, you know, how do we reduce the pain that we're going to feel when it happens as survivalists? So we need to be thinking, not patriots to come and collapse. Not everybody's going to go live in a hole in the ground. It's just not the way modern societies function. Even when economies completely fall apart, they always get rebuilt. We're humans. It's what we do. We know how electricity works. It's not going away forever. Even if it did, we'll rebuild it. Because the biggest thing in innovation is knowing that something's possible in the first place. The knowledge that all of these technologies are possible now exists. The next thing we have to ask is, well, why forget all the economic outlook, everything else. Why would Airbus want to plant in the United States? Let's forget about Mobile Alabama for a minute. Well, Airbus is one of their, you know, some of their biggest customers are right here in the United States. So if you come here and build your product here, or at least assemble your product here, even though you might manufacture a lot of components overseas, you avoid tariff on importation. So it's just a better model. You can also bring the CEOs and things like that and, and, and big wigs of your, of your customer base into the plant and let them, it's just a better, logistically a better way to do things to be in their own home country. Okay. Now we can look at the big word, socialism. Is this country socialist? Hey, you bet your ass we're socialist. Are we as socialist as France? Nope. Nope. We have a better workforce than France? Yes, we do. Especially on the assembly line uh, level stuff, even high-end uh, requiring education like air, aircraft construction and things like that. We also have, because of our uh, unemployment rate, uh, a large number of people that are highly educated in these industries that are willing to take jobs for less than they would have been, let's say, 10 years ago. All right, So we have that going for us. We have a very educated population hungry for work.
And if we, we can add to that, this is a great place to build airplanes. Some of the most amazing aircraft manufacturers in the world are U.S.-based companies. Look at Boeing. I mean, Boeing is an amazing company. They do amazing things, both uh, in the civilian space and in the military space. But Boeing has a problem. See, Boeing's a U.S.-based company, and they have a thing called a union that has their tentacles all wrapped around them. Not long ago, Boeing tried to open up a plant, much like Airbus is doing now in the Carolinas. It would create wonderful jobs. They were opening up in a, in a right-to-work state without union requirements, and they were going to be able to open this plant and say it's a non-union shop. The union didn't like it, so it shut it down and did not let Boeing expand business in America in the middle of a recession when Boeing, an American company, could have been doing this because the union are so freaking greedy. You know, that, that, That's what it comes down to. If you're going to open a new plant, do it here in Seattle. All right, so that that shows you that American companies have wanted to do this same thing: open up an aircraft manufacturing plant because it's a good business. It's a multi-billion-dollar business, and there's still business there, and there always will be as long as anybody wants to fly anywhere. And if you want to do it, you go to a city that's developing, that's growing, that's free of the constraints of labor unions. If you're Boeing or Grumman or somebody like that, you get a lot of trouble when you try to do this stuff. If you're Airbus from France, you can open your dadgone plant in America anywhere you want to and employ or not employ union labor. So it's just a good business decision. It's also a very smart and competitive decision. It was probably, at least in part, springboarded by Boeing being shut down with their plants to open plants in Carolinas. So here's Vom Airbus. I'm thinking, okay, I've got this competitor. My biggest competitor in the world is Boeing. They wanted to open up a plant. Not here in France, not in Germany, not anywhere in Europe, uh, not in Mexico, you know, where they talk about low, low labor rates, not in China. Not in, they wanted to go into small town, mid-sized city, USA, outside of the union area and set up. And they tried to do it, and their own union prevented them from creating jobs and making money. We're not constrained by that. So if we go do that, we gain an immediate competitive advantage. We can point out American manufacturing and American job creation. We can get all the reduction in tariffs and imports and things like that that go along with it. We get a great workforce. We get a great strong community that we're helping build inside that work and with that workforce inside that community. We get a tremendous amount of local support because we're bringing jobs to the community. We get a pricing advantage. We get the advantage of not being encumbered with union labor. And we can do all that. And we already know they can't. This is a good time to do it. That's how I'd make that business decision if I was running Airbus. There you go. All right, folks, we're ready to wrap up today with a final story, and I'm going to tell you the story, and then we're going to have a good old-fashioned lesson from Uncle Jack on bullshit and understand that the story isn't really the story. The story is much bigger than the story. Um, right now, most people in this audience would know that with much ado and fanfare, the United States House of Representatives, he, your congressman, have passed the audit the Fed legislation introduced by Representative Ron Paul and uh, co-sponsored by over half of the House. It actually came to a vote. It passed, and it would require additional oversight and give the United States Congress, both the House and the Senate, greater oversight into what the Federal Reserve's doing uh, and some influence on what they're, you know, whether or not they should be doing it in the first place. In other words, 
your Congress would stand up and do its constitutional duty to oversee the currency, at least on some level, not an elimination of the Fed, but at least some more oversight by elected officials that are accountable to you, the people, uh, with the Federal Reserve. Problem is, we, as we know, that this would have to go first to the Senate and then to the ass clown, who would either sign it or not sign it. The hope, of course, would be that by the time the Senate got done playing with it, we'd be through the election and uh, Mitt Romney would be president and maybe more likely to sign off on it uh, than Barack Obama. Though I don't believe that because I don't believe in leprechauns and unicorns and the ability to fart angels out of your ass either. But that's the hope. The other hope would be that whether it was Romney or Obama, if it passed the House and the Senate, that any sitting president would look at it and go, hmm, maybe I need to listen to the people. Or... Or that it would then uh, really be uh, obvious to the people of the United States that even when they've asked for something, they didn't get it and lead to greater reform by the people itself uh, asking for it. Or since it actually required due to a technicality with a change of rules or something like that, required a 66% vote. In the House, see, it wasn't a 50% majority vote. That if it went to the Senate with a 66% vote, and it went to the President with a 66% vote out of both houses, the President would then look at it and go, "I don't want my veto overturned," and clearly they have the votes. And that any person that would change their vote after it was vetoed by the President would have some splaining to do. So this was kind of like, can we trap them into it? But the juggernaut, the person preventing it all, the dam in the works. Senator Harry Reid that just says, I don't think we need to be doing this right now. And as a Senate majority leader, I'm not going to let it come to a vote. So the Senate majority leader has a lot of pro a lot of power, as does the, the House majority leader. And the minority leaders actually have a lot of power to prevent things from even getting on the docket, even getting done. Um, unless, of course, they do things like writers and amendments and stuff like that. Um, but that's one back to our way they're going to try to do things now, like limit the purchase of ammo online, by the way. Uh, and they've got now in an Internet security bill, they put a rider on it to try to uh, once again restrict magazines of greater than 10 rounds. I don't think that's going to pass because the, 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 the bill they amended it to is not very popular in the first place. But that's one we need to stand up against, too, guys. But let's stick to the lesson in uh, political bullshit here from Uncle Jack. What if I told you that Harry Reid didn't always feel this way? What if I told you that at one time the great Senator Harry Reid from the great state of Nevada actually believed that auditing the Fed was a good idea, that it was necessary, in fact it should be done? Let me read you this article, and this article is on cnsnews.com. The House of Representatives overwhelmingly passed a bill 327 to 98. Now let me tell you something what you need to do. I, I believe, unless you think it's good to have the Federal Reserve in secrecy. You need to see what your representative voted on this, and if they're one of the 98 that voted against auditing the Fed, you need to call them and tell them they're an ass clown and that you're not supporting them in the future, even though I don't support any of them at all. I would let your voice be heard. 327 to 98 this week to audit the Federal Reserve, but Democratic-controlled Senate is not expected to take up a similar measure there. Even though Senator Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, Democrat Nevada, strongly favored auditing the Federal Reserve system several years ago. On January 25, 1995, Reid argued in favor of an amendment by then-Senator Byron Dorgan, Democrat North Dakota. Hmm, it was okay because the Democrats wanted to do it, right? That would require the Federal Reserve to prepare a report to Congress and disclose the financial impact of charging interest rate, changing interest rates uh, on the public and private sector. 
I have sponsored, quote, I have, this is a quote from Reed, okay? I have sponsored legislation that would call for an audit of the Federal Reserve System. I offer that amendment every year. Every year the legislation gets nowhere. I think it would be interesting to know about the Federal Reserve. I think we should audit the Federal Reserve, end quote, Reed said. He then continued, quote, it's taxpayers' money that's being used there, but we don't do that. Senator Doran, Dorgan has spoken out about the secrecy of the Federal Reserve System. He has spoken out on the Federal Reserve more than anyone I know in either body, end quote. Continuing to quote, but even there, there is no entity in the world that controls our lives more than the Federal Reserve System. His speeches go unnoticed, I'm sorry to say, Reed said. Reed lamented the fact that the Federal Reserve System just wasn't talked about enough. Quote, people don't, just don't care. It seems the Federal Reserve, maybe it's because it's just a subject that isn't very interesting. You know, it's not por uh, pornography, it's not murder, it's not, it's not an issue that deals with the Wild West water uh, grazing. Uh, it doesn't deal with issues that we talk about here a lot. But we don't talk enough about the Federal Reserve and the impact it has on our lives, end quote. Reed mentioned that the Federal Reserve raised interest rates six times since since the February of 1994. Quote, if someone likes this legislation, generally speaking, that is, we're going to stop unfunded mandates, then we should love this amendment, arguing in favor of an amendment sponsored by Dorgan. If the principle of unfunded mandates being stopped sounds good to senators, then they should jump with joy and run over here and co-sponsor this legislation because this... This really overshadows all other unfunded mandates because these go on all the time. Reed's talking about the hidden taxes, folks. You can read the little bit that's left of this article if you want to, but you have to ask yourself, why was Reed so into this back then? Why did Reed like raising the saber and rattling it and saying we should audit the Fed back in 1995? I'll tell you why. It wasn't going to go anywhere in 1995. This is the lesson in bullshit. Your politicians are always in favor of doing things that seem like they would have popular support, that seem like a good idea, that seem like something that should be done, as long as there's enough current opposition so that they can say it should be done without actually getting it done. If in 1995, when he was running his mouth about this, all of a sudden the people over in the house said, that's a great idea, Harry, send it on over here, I guarantee you it would have disappeared. It would have disappeared. It absolutely, positively would have disappeared. There's so many things that government talks about doing, and they say we just can't do it because the other side won't let us. We just can't do this. We just can't do that. We just can't do this. Most of the time, they're not even in favor of doing what they're talking about. It's easy to be for something. It's easy to be for something when you know it's not going to happen anyway. What people want to point out with this article is look how hypocritical Reed is. Of course he is. He's a politician. Look how he's lying now. Of course he is. His mouth's moving and he's a politician. Duh. This is not about hypocrisy. This is about how the game's played. We're for this. We're opposed to that. Until there's actually an opportunity to get it done, then all of a sudden I forgot about the fact that I used to be for or against that or I've changed my mind or there's new evidence or something's different now. There's really nothing different now, is there, Mr. Reed? The Federal Reserve still is the ultimate unfunded mandate. It's still the ultimate way that we backdoor tax the American people. It's still shrouded in secrecy. If anything, we know more now than we did then, and we know the abuse is greater than we even imagined. We know that they loaned $16 trillion of the American people's money to banks and institutions all over the, United, all over the world. 
and they never disclosed that until they were forced to by actions taken by Senator Sanders and, and Congressman Paul. So did Reed really change his mind here? I don't think he changed his mind. I don't think he ever intended to audit the Fed. I think he was talking about it when it was engendering support from certain groups that he wanted, and he was never serious about it. And I think that I can just about take any major politician today and probably find an example just like this. Because, folks, as I've been trying to tell you for so long now, they're all full of shit. They're not going to fix these problems. They're the ones that created them. This crap is going to happen over and over again. They're going to continue to assault our liberties. They're going to continue to trample on the Constitution. Hell, they're going to continue to wipe their butts with the Constitution. It's up to us to hold their feet to the fire. And your fellow Americans are just not ready to do it yet. They haven't been pushed far enough. They haven't been knocked down enough. They haven't been kicked in the groin enough. You know, they just haven't. They, they're still too comfortable. They're still okay with this. The majority of people don't really want anything to change. They just want to feel like they're on the winning side of the fight. So they pick the D or they pick the R, they justify their choice, and then they say, it's, it's not my guy's fault. The other people are preventing him from doing it. Obama blamed the Republicans with a supermajority in the Senate, with a supermajority in the House, control of the executive branch. He still blamed the Republicans for not being able to get certain things done. The Republicans did the same thing under Bush. You know, they didn't have super majorities, but we had a time where Bush had a majority in the Senate, a majority in the House, and control of the White House. And they still, well, yeah, we want to fix Social Security. We, we do, but the Democrats won't let us. They all do this. It's standard operating procedure, SOP, right? Non-military types, SOP, standard operating procedure. We're for it until we actually have to actually get it done. Or we're opposed to it until um, it's actually going to get done. And, and, and now the opposition wanes and goes away. And hopefully no one will remember what I said 10 or 15 years ago anyway. Uh, this damn Internet, though, it just doesn't go away, does it, uh, politicians? Does it? It's the greatest thing about the Internet. And, and it's going to become more true every day. Everything you ass clowns are doing is being recorded. Sooner or later... The people of this country will wake up to the fact that you're all a bunch of liars, cheaters, and thieves. And when they do, maybe they'll have the intestinal fortitude to stand and look down the barrel of the economic gun that you've created and understand the pain and misery to rebuild this country, and they'll stand up and get rid of you anyway and replace you with actual representatives and fix this damn thing. But folks, until then, we don't have time to wait. We have to fix it in our own lives. We have to be prepared for the best, and we have to be prepared for the worst. We can't pretend to know what's coming because we don't. We just know the overall trend, further devaluation of money, further erosion of our liberties. And we need to live our lives in liberty, and we need to live our lives with as much prosperity as we can anyway in spite of these facts. It is the number one way to oppose and resist them is to be an example so that your fellow American citizens, as they do begin to wake up, when they look around and go, well, is anybody doing it? Is anybody standing up? They'll look to you and say, well, they're standing up. They're not holding signs and chanting maybe, but they're doing it in their own lives. How do I do that too? As soon as you start to take responsibility for your own life, as soon as you start to square away your own backyard and your own neighborhood, all of a sudden, all these things that are bullshit start to be unveiled for the bullshit that they are. You're not even surprised when you hear something like Senator Reid used to be fraud at the Fed. Of course he did. Of course he did. When Republicans were opposed to it, it was easy to be for it. Now that Republicans are starting, at least in the House, to say, this is a good idea, and even Democrats in the House are saying this is a good idea, now it's not so easy. 
Now it's not so easy to stand up anymore, is it, Mr. Reed? Now the American people might find out the truth. And trust me, there's nothing that motivates a politician like self-preservation. And I can tell you right now that if there's anybody that doesn't want the American people to know about what the Fed has been doing all these years, it's people like Senator Reed and past, former, and future presidents. They don't want it. But maybe one day we'll actually get it done. We've come further this time than I think most people ever thought we would. And one little bit of hope for all of you folks out there that are fans of, of uh, Congressman Ron Paul. And you're thinking to yourself, well, what's going to happen this year when a guy with as much clout and authority and committee assignments and all in the House uh, walks away and says, I've, I've done my duty for as many years as I can. I've asked to be your president multiple times, and, and the people aren't ready for me yet, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm turning it in. Uh, I think Mr. Paul, the Honorable Dr. Ron Paul, is going to go on a freaking melee of getting people like him elected into the House and the Senate. Um, that's something I'm excited about. I think that's the future. I think his, his goal with this convention is simply to speak and be seen at a national level and really present his vision for uh, the American people and to use that as a springboard in two years from now. I don't think you'll see less of Dr. Paul. I think you'll see more. But instead of being on a campaign trail for himself, he'll be doing what he can to get 10 or 20 people like him in the government. And then maybe, just maybe, if time hasn't completely run out on us economically, then maybe we can start to fix this thing. What I want you to know, though, is that I'm giving you the truth today, folks. The absolute truth. I've gone long and my voice is beginning to fade again, but I want you to hear me. The truth is there's no easy way out of this. If we replaced everybody up on the hills, the state and federal hills today, with honorable men that could not be bought out, that would not even let the system corrupt them, and if they started doing the things the right way today, we're going to go through pain. We're going to go through agony. We're going to go through a lot. Um, one of my favorite quotes is from a gentleman who's no longer with us. His name was Stephen Covey, and uh, I did a little feature on him on my last business podcast, Five Minutes with Jack, which you can get at jackspeaker.com. And I said that Stephen Covey is a mentor who I never met, who never met me, and I never even fully read his book. Uh, I just learned from one of the diagrams in his book about the circle of influence and the circle of concern, which I, I won't go into today. Um, but... I've also always liked some of his quotes, and this is my favorite quote, and it is so relevant to what we have been talking about today with the future of our country and the, the pain that we have to go through to fix the problems. While we are free to choose our actions, we are not free to choose the consequences of our actions. We collectively as a people have chosen to act the way that we have for the past hundred years, to turn away our financial sovereignty to a group of, uh, of banks. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the facts. To allow the government to get away with what they've done, to infringe on liberty, to spend money we don't have, to put us into debt, to do it to ourselves as well. We've chosen this. And I know you could say, well, I didn't choose it. Well, you maybe didn't as an individual, but we did collectively. And you're part of we, whether you want to be or not. I'm all for individual sovereignty, claiming responsibility for our own actions, stepping outside of the fold, doing things on our own way. But we are still we, right? You are still an American if you live here. And if you live in another country, your country's probably done this too, and you're dealing with it in a different way. But we are we. We are part of this. We have chosen our actions collectively. We've chosen to choose party over principle. We've chosen to believe the bullshit and the lie. 
We've chosen to take the shiny credit card and buy shiny things, and we've chosen to let the government take the giant card and buy crappy things and give them to us and call it a benefit. We've chosen all of this. So we chose our actions, and we can choose our actions going forward to improve things. But we will, we must, we shall deal with the actions that we've taken up till this time. There is no way out of it. The only thing we control is our actions from this day forward. From this day forward. That's all you control. You can't even control the actions you took yesterday. Only the actions you take today. And all of the actions you've taken individually and collectively have consequences that are hurtling at you from the universe right now, barreling down on you, some good and some bad. But they're all coming And your only effect on those consequences is the actions you take today going forward. Whether you're prepared for them or not when they get here. That's your choice, not whether or not they come. And you may not think it's fair that so many of your fellow Americans or fellow countrymen, if you're from another nation, have behaved so stupidly. But I think if we're all honest with ourselves, there's been times where we've been part of the collective stupidity too. Maybe 1%, maybe 5% of our lives, whatever it was, but we were a part of it. We remained silent, and we did the things too. Maybe not as bad as somebody else did, but this is group punishment, folks. It's not going to be handed out based on who's most responsible. It's going to be handed to all of us. The good news is we do choose our actions, and we do choose what we do from this day forward. And what you need to be doing from this day forward is preparing for the consequences of your own mistakes the mistakes of the prior generations and the mistakes of your government because the consequences are coming. But if we do prepare, if we do take action today to mitigate those consequences, to deal with those consequences, to accept them, then we can be on our way to fixing the problem. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for